carjacking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. You think it's cool? Let the fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney from Rooney Baseball. This is episode 276, Toe the Rubber. Before we get to Jim, I just want to say a special thank you to our audience, close to 50,000 subscribers. 74 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices, showing your major support for what we're trying to do here. And because of your support, we've now been added to iHeartRadio as their newest podcast stream. So make sure you support their support of us uh, by streaming us on on iHeart if possible. Um, Got a great show in store for you today, about an hour's worth of content. Uh, We're going to recap a little bit what we did last week because it it feeds right into what we're trying to do today. And uh, with that, I want to welcome Jim back to your show. Jim, welcome back. Thank you, Dave. Hello, everyone. So last week we, we covered uh, in, in great detail the, the timing of, uh, what, you know, when is it time to throw that curveball? And if it's not too much of a pain, um, we don't have to go, you know, all the way back with it, but just kind of recap that because uh, you've got some great content this week that I think is really important. And I certainly believe that last week's episode uh, just flows uh, seamlessly into what we're trying to get across today. Yes. Um, initially, the, the the funny thing about leading into this week was, you know, I looked back on some of the prior episodes and I was thinking, well, maybe it's time to uh, just kick back, have some fun and go over a couple of stories, some funny stories, maybe from my past, some things that I've experienced. And then sure enough, something hits me. I go to a travel baseball tournament last weekend and uh, I'm watching a 10U game. And um, sure enough, the pitchers wearing the pitch major league pitch comp system, and the managers calling the pitches from the dugout. So I'll get more into that later, but that triggered into me some thoughts, and uh, I think it brought into a natural lead to maybe open my eyes to really what we should be talking about this week, and that is the rise of Tommy John surgeries um, throughout baseball all the way down to, you know, there's a, I believe on the books, it's insane to think, but there's a documented case of a 10 year old. So, um, so when I looked at it, I I was thinking, well, you know what, here's what we talked about the past two weeks. When should my son, you know, or daughter start pitching? And that led into when should we start throwing curveballs? We had a good conversation on that, and we discussed the physical, psychological, emotional factors um, that help us answer those uh, two questions. Uh, Last week, with throwing the curveball, we got into the uh, article by the Associated Press News, the sweeper, uh, manipulating the baseball. It's um, It's when pitch shape and performance starts to dictate arm slot. Um... A story that I I read recently was that um, there was a time in the not-so-distant past, I believe it was this year, early this year, that um, 
the New York Yankees accused the Toronto Blue Jays of somehow stealing their pitches. And there was, uh, I, I guess they asked the commissioner's office to investigate the matter. And there was something they felt that was, maybe they were using technology. They just couldn't figure it out. But they were sure that um, they were stealing the pitches. I do believe the starting pitcher that day might have been Luis Severino. The funny thing about it is that a majority of the sources at the ballpark, whether it be uh, announcers with big league experience or some fans with uh, some some pretty good experience in the game of baseball, they all stated that it was quite obvious on all the pitchers, especially with Severino, but on all the pitchers that were used that day, that their arm slot was completely different on their breaking ball than it was on their fastball and once again a majority of the pitchers that threw that day had recently changed the shape of their breaking pitch in the past year to something that more resembled the now you know phenom of pitches the sweeper so i looked back and did some research and uh some people had brought up that in the previous spring training the Yankees' focus was on creating sweepers. They went to a more performance-based uh, creation of a pitch shape on their breaking balls. And I guess they did not have anybody standing there watching and realizing that the arm slots were completely different on the two pitches. So if you want to call it spin that goes on in the modern-day game now, and instead of addressing the problem, that was created by whoever was involved in their performance and development staff. They blamed it on that the other team was stealing their pitches. Um, so this weekend when I saw the uh, 10 new travel team use the pitch comp system, a couple of things struck me. One, the 10 year old pitching, he was pretty good. Uh, but the pitch comm unit that they had strapped to his forearm basically took up his whole forearm. <laughs> so after every pitch, besides looking down on it to see, he was adjusting it. So initially I thought, well, since we're pretty technologically advanced here on this 10-year travel team, I'm curious to know, did they do a uh, video analysis on pitching with the pitch calm and pitching without the pitch calm and notice any delivery issues that arose because one, the pitch calm took up his whole forearm Two, the average 10 year old that was pitching that day is not strong enough to actually stay in their mechanics anyway, let alone if they have a, a mechanical device strapped to their forearm. Uh, word around the ballpark was that um, the head coach, the manager, had grown tired of his uh, of people stealing his pitches uh, while they were on their Florida trip to some invitational. So the parallel there is that uh, the Yankees accused the uh, Blue Jays, Toronto Blue Jays, of stealing their pitches instead of addressing the problem that um, – we went to a performance-based uh, system to try to create and manipulate pitch shape. 
And it trickles all the way down to this 10U travel team where the manager, instead of being honest and saying, uh, I want total 100% control over every single thing that goes on in the field, he states that, well, I'm sick and tired of people stealing our pitches. Um, Just a quick question. How many many possible pitches does a 10-year-old have? Well, that leads into the next thing, Dave. What's it, straight ball and other straight ball? Striking ball? Yeah, exactly. So all of a sudden we watch the game, and sure enough, we see a young 10-year-old pitcher attempting to manipulate the ball out front to get the result that the manager wants based upon the pitches he's calling on a major league pitch comp system in a 10-year-old game. What's really crazy about it is that this team is an excellent team. I mean, they have athletes up and down their lineup. They're a nationally ranked team. Uh, I looked into it in a couple of their other age groups above them are also nationally ranked or maybe even number one ranked. Uh, if that's, uh, if that's, See, that's, another, that's another silly, it's just as silly as the pitch come. Right. Uh, like I said, if, if, if okay. that kind of information floats your boat, well, it, you know, there it is, but, um, they rank 10 year olds. It's, uh, and you know how that stuff works. If you, it's a pay to play, you pay, you get in there, you pay enough money, your players get ranked, your team gets ranked. So you keep going back. And yeah. They, they get so, you at the gate because now instead of four parents or four parents and grandparents, you're bringing 20 with friends so they can see the number three 10 year old team in America. It's right. a, oh my God, what a racket. Right. And then um, the thing is, is that in this tournament, it, it wasn't a large tournament, it was a local tournament. And um, I, I would say that maybe there were six teams to start. I, I don't really know the exact number. But in the games that I watched, a majority of teams were pretty equal in talent. It, it just depending on, you know, if the pitcher threw strikes that day and if the fielders caught the ball, just like in any 10-year-old game. And this nationally ranked team, one, why was it even there? Because it's just going to beat people, mercy rule, every, every team they played against, basically. So I'm like, what, what good is it for the players on that team? And what good is it for the players on the other team? And then to think that during this type of tournament, where you're obviously the most dominant team on the field, why wouldn't you, um, why wouldn't you think, hey, this might be the perfect uh, opportunity to help our kids call their own pitches and work with them? That's a great time to develop players, to get get them different spots, get them different looks. So if you're going to tell me that you're going to put your team that's going to mercy rule every team in this little local tournament in the tournament because you're working on the development of those players, helping them learn how to call their own pitches, helping them know where – uh, even if it's a fastball, when we're just throwing fastballs, let's say, you know, when do we go in? When do we go out? On a one-two count, where's it better to miss? Right on an O-two count, where's it better to miss? These are all learning opportunities for the kids to learn the game of baseball. 
Because we know the real reason. You you basically went into it, had the pitch calm, control everything that goes on in the field, take advantage of the other team's weaknesses because they're, you know, a majority of the other teams basically should have been in a, in a in a development league or a little league or a town rec league that, you know, was pretty good at the level of competition. But what happens is with the disintegration of all of those um, little league and, and rec ball and stuff like that, sometimes the parents and the players only have one option to play on the on the local travel team or the second level travel team or the fourth or fifth travel team on a nationally ranked organization and so forth and so on. So it had me think back um, to a couple of things that transpired uh, in the first couple of years when I was the pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. And um, you start to see, I'll, I'll call it a, the bounce back effect, just to throw a term on it. And how um, on the amateur level, the adults, the coaches, the parents, they're attempting to control the environment of all those kids playing on the field. And then the kids don't naturally learn how to play the game of baseball. I mean, we've talked in the past about play to learn, about the flow state and all those other things. But just the simple concepts of if you're an outfielder, where should you be positioned for the number three power hitter happens to be lefty. You know, we, we have to start to figure these things out, okay? But we take these opportunities away. And the, the, the most advanced way we take those away is in the pitcher-catcher relationship where all of a sudden in a 10-year-old game where the pitcher probably should be throwing fastballs and change-ups or fastballs for strikes. We're now attempting to throw three or four pitches, we're calling those pitches from the dugout. I, I almost wish you got that guy's number so we could put him on the show. That would have been a great uh, interview. Cause well, I'm actually curious. Like I, I have, that is the, when you check that, I was, I was baffled. I was yeah. like, no way. But I thought, I thought you were busting my balls. No, but, <laughs> I mean, what, what, I, what I'm trying to do here with the, with the podcast is I, I'm trying to just educate people and just help them during this whole process. Um, I rarely, if ever, as we know, use anybody's name or anything like that. That's not that's not my intention. I'm I'm not here to call anybody out or tell no, them. No, but it would have been. I mean, if he honestly believed in it, and in let's say you don't or I don't, those are healthy conversations to have because I, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it is the thing to do. But I would I would love not from a call out standpoint, from just to hear. And it's almost empathetic. I, I truly, and no joke, I truly want to understand what the thought process was behind that because he had to give it some thought. There had to be some rationale other than the sign stealing. That can't be total. But uh, I'd like to hear him out, um, not well, call. I mean, my thoughts on that is that it's a control-orientated environment where this gentleman was was uh, had took a team right up the ladder in this organization and had been successful. And now he's, after he did his run with that group of boys that are, are now 17, 18, 19 years old, they dropped them back to 10U and now they want to take that team and have them mature and play together and be nationally ranked and bring more notoriety so they can bring more sponsors. 
recently they received a national sponsor. So a lot of the kids on the team don't even have to pay to play. Uh, they bring in the technology, they do all this other stuff. Um, and then they attempt to make themselves, of course, more attractive. This club was also for a tournament where they already were going to dominate the field, was flying in. There was two kids flying in. Of course, the kids' parents paid for their flights, but two kids flying in from from out of state. And we're not talking about states that bordered the Carolinas. We're talking about pretty good distances, um, you know, to play in the tournament. And, of course, one of them ended up being their three-hitter, so obviously, or four-hitter, so obviously he was – he was pretty good before anyone even had to lay eyes on him. But the thing about what I call this bounce back effect is that, um, so for a while now, even before they invented the pitch comp system, managers and coaches, pitching coaches have been calling pitches um, on the amateur level. right? And once again, if, if push comes to shove, my opinion would be, it's to attempt to control everything that's going on to attempt to win every game that's possibly could be won. Um, Very little development and training and, and real life experiences being, you know, garnered in those situations. So now if we were to attract just two, you know, two young pitcher and a young catcher, they go up the ladder together and let's say they're, you know, physical studs. So the day comes that they both end up in pro ball and they're in rookie ball, you know, uh, playing in, let's say the Arizona spring league there. Um, They call it complex baseball, right? Because they're at the spring training complex and uh, pitching coordinator comes to town, which has happened to me in the past. And the manager of the rookie ball team says, um, Hey, when can we start uh, calling pitches for this guy? Or when can we uh, start calling slide steps or when, and they're attempting to control the environment also in order to win games. And you say, no, 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 we're not going to, we're not going to do any of that. So you fast forward to today and the, this pitching coordinator realizes that, um, well, the adults, the coaches, the parents, amateur baseball as a whole has, has created this environment, has created this atmosphere because now these guys are getting into professional baseball and they don't know how to pitch to a hitter. They don't know how to use pitch combinations. They don't have, nobody's ever taught them. So now they're in, they're in rookie ball and in pro ball and how are they going to learn within a couple of months period of time of what it's done? So of course, then that manager goes to the pitching coordinator and asks when they can start controlling things. Um, you know, at the time you look at the manager and you go, well, no, 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 we're not doing those. These guys have to learn how to do things. And, you know, but when you look back um, and then now this past weekend, that's now all bounced back to, so it went up the ladder on an amateur level that we're not teaching them how to do specific things within the in the context of the game of baseball. And it goes all the way up to the professional level. And then the professional level reacts. And even the different analytic departments, when they start to tell you different things about what should be done, they're just reacting 
to the environment and the situation that they're dealing with. And then it goes up and they change the way they're supposed to do things. And now it, we walk into a 10-year-old game and they're using the baseball major league pitch comp system. So the 10-year-old environment created this because we were calling pitches for a while now. It goes all the way up to the big leagues. Now the big leagues invent this pitch comp system and it bounces all the way back to the 10-year-olds. And now that's happened in many, many different areas in baseball. And I think that's why, you know, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is what I've always said. A lot of analytics is we start looking at certain things and then we start creating certain things and then the game goes in that direction. And, and you scientific method. Yeah. Total opposite. It's a, it's the way it shouldn't be done. It, isn't it amazing though? Like in you and I, similar experiences because we have children around the same age and we're coming from an environment that's not grassroots oriented, um, at seeing more of the finished product. And my eyes have been open a ton with just following my kids through grassroots, not even looking for anything, just kind of being there and, and just being amazed and asking other parents, like, is this what it's like? And they're like, yeah, looking at me like I'm the Martian coming in, which I guess I am in a way. Yeah. You know what? It also has to do that, uh, you know, your view is different because you're not part of what they view as the norm now. Um, it, it, just, it just creates an environment that we've spoke about in the past where young ball players are not learning how to play the game. You, you don't see the joy. You, you go to some of these tournaments, you see more kids crying or throwing their helmet or throwing their bat or arguing with the umpire, um, or arguing with their teammates because everything has become individualized. Um, you know, we can go on and on and on about, you know, we've spoken before about the ESPN top 10 clips and all this type of thing. Um, but because of the past couple of weeks and then, me looking back on what went on this weekend, I started doing some research and, and we've spoken about it before. We know there's a rise in Tommy John surgeries. We know that it affects all age levels from the major leagues down to initially I thought 14 year olds. And next thing you know, I'm reading that there's documented cases of 10 year olds. Um, so I, I started putting some thoughts together on like, why is this happening? You know, and and a, a lot of people with a lot lot more letters after their name have done this and researched it. But some things that I've thought of over the years, um, because these numbers show that it, there's just not an increase. It's a dramatic increase. Like from... From the invention of Tommy John, and I don't have the specific date that uh, Dr. Job did the first surgery, but from, from that date till the year 2003, on average, throughout Major League Baseball, and I believe amateur baseball, there had been approximately... 10 Tommy John surgeries per year. 
And then I believe from approximately 2016, that number rose to over 80 a year. So that's an eight, that's an eight time increase and in, in not a real long period of time. So when I first saw those numbers, I was like, okay, so why do we think some of this is occurring? And uh, there were some factors that I always thought 20 years ago, I thought about some things in the early 2000s when I was coaching and scouting. And then I put together this timeline and I realized wow, all these things adding up are, are probably what's, uh, you know, having us trend in this direction. The first one was in the, in the early 1980s, say late 70s, eight, early 80s, we saw the rise of aluminum bat usage. And we've discussed in the, in the past, this is what I call a, the generations of missing bat syndrome. You know, you're a young pitcher and you're now facing aluminum bats. You learn pretty quickly that my goal is to miss the bat because where I used to throw against a wood bat and get weak contact or a broken bat ground ball, now I'm giving up hits. So we start to do things to miss bats. We don't necessarily live at that time in a, in a world um, with a great amount of technology as far as the game of baseball is concerned. So it's all trial and error to make the ball, to manipulate the baseball so that we miss bats. And it's a, you know, learn as you go kind of process. So a lot of hit and miss, a lot of trial by error. Well, trial by error means that you're throwing a lot of pitches that are not only successful in missing bats or creating what you're looking for, but is increasing workload and wear and tear on your arm because of improper biomechanics. Concurrently, in that period of time, there was an increased acceptance in strength and conditioning programs in baseball. Before that, uh, majority of baseball players, you know, they became baseball players and big, strong athletes by doing manual labor. Now, all of a sudden, strength and conditioning programs are being accepted. Well, go ahead. I was going to say when, when you're looking at, and I, I agree totally, I, I think the, and, and I'm a byproduct of some of that too. I think an improper lifting hurt me at times as well. It did some really good things for me. It helped me grow as an athlete, but, um, abuse and trying to, um, trying to add to my skill set through the weight room was a mistake that I made and fortunately corrected. But isn't it funny though, when you're looking at some of these workout programs, aren't they simulating manual labor to see all these sledgehammer things and throwing heavy balls? I mean, it's, it's funny that in lieu of manual labor, we're simulating workouts that resemble manual labor. Yes. I mean, I had that conversation one time with Don money when he was double a manager for the brewers. And we were talking and I said, we think we live in an ever evolving society. When you were playing, you had to go home and work on your dad's farm, do manual labor and you got strong as an ox. Uh, but, you were paid to do that work. And now we live in a society where you see all the strength coaches trying to, you know, simulate uh, manual labor. The only difference is the player is now paying somebody to do that manual labor. So it was just a funny story that, that relates to that issue. But 
like I'll give you an example. Um, in in my career, when I was a freshman at Cornell, the very so this is um, the fall of nineteen seventy nine. Knowledge machines had come into into vogue, and this was all about one set to failure. Uh, full body circuit three times a week, the variable resistance cams on a Nautilus machine would uh, apply the proper resistance to the proper strength levels in the range of motion of the exercise you were doing. And uh, a lot of baseball guys bought into this, that, whoa, we finally have a way in which baseball players can lift. So you'd go in there and you'd beat yourself up to muscular failure. And because, you know, the coaches and at that time, we didn't even really have a strength, a strength coach, but it was just a program that the baseball guys put you on. And yes, you got bigger and you got stronger. It was definitely. And then you get into pro ball and uh, all of a sudden you're, you're in, in instructional ball, you're going over to a knowledge facility and you find out later it's because somebody associated with the program is also part owner of that Nautilus facility and you're doing more Nautilus workouts. Well, you end up getting a lot bigger and stronger, um, but you also end up getting slower, all right, because of the type of training you're doing. But this is the initial stages of strength programs being accepted by the baseball community. A couple of years later, uh, when the uh, arguments starting arising as the science of training in strength and conditioning started improving, and people started doing research into the type of training protocols that are best, and the uh, Green Bay Packers did some research where they found that the knowledge training protocol was very beneficial in the initial stages of their strength program in their annual periodization schedule. And they would do it no more than two to three months, usually two months, uh, eight weeks in prep to the different power cycles and other forms of training that were beneficial for the football player. So as a baseball player, you, you, you know, you hear that and you're like, wow, this is what I've been doing the last three or four years because this is what the authority told us to do. So a lot of trial and error was going on, which wasn't necessarily good for uh, pitchers. Uh, and now that coincided, as we stated, with the rise in aluminum bat usage and the questions of you know the missing bat syndrome, like I call it. And then in 1990s, we start to see the advance in showcase baseball and travel teams. And um, one of the leading proponents for all of that is probably still one of the most sought after showcases and tournaments to be invited to or go to. In 1995, the creation of uh, Perfect Game. We go up to 2000 and I can remember scouting. We've told us some stories about the sweeper last week and in 2000, we start to really see uh, the trial and error versions of pitch manipulation and the creation of the slurve. So an old baseball guy will tell you, you know, a slurve's a bad curveball and a horrible slider. But 
it's being used and you see it. You, you see some organizations that are, they're taking um, entire pitching staffs that just came in from the draft. And uh, instead of working to uh, help them with their curveball or to tighten up that slider and teach it the right way, that's not a breaking ball. It's the one pitch that you, you stay behind, just like your fastball and your changeup. They start blended into a slurve, and then I, they think that, that, well, now I got the breaking ball for this guy, so we can move ahead now. But in essence, you know, we're just increasing the bad workload and all the things that are going to go wrong in the future as far as for that player's shoulder. And then I saw an interesting graph. At 2,000, upward, upward ticks in, in velocity started to occur. But in 2008, the upward trend in uh, increased velocity, there was a major increase. And then it steadily started going up to, to the present day. With the last few years, the increases in the last, say, five years are, in some cases, double to triple the combined five years prior. So like in one year, the average velocity is going up. And these are major league statistics, but the average velocity is going up greater than it did the five years previously, right? So that's that's when we start to hear the term that some guys are throwing around, um, thankfully, uh, about this whole thought process of selling out for velocity. So now let's go go back to the bounce back effect. Major league clubs and organizations, they cut back on scouting in, in different ways. Things are mo moving more to video analysis and analytical analysis. They're talking about spin rates and all types of things like that. Velocity becomes a key. Now we get more and more programs on amateur level popping up. I'll increase your son or daughter's velocity by six to eight miles an hour in the next six weeks, guaranteed. And this environment <clears throat> starts growing and growing. All right. So we see the increases and in what the Major League Baseball is looking for. That then trickles down as far as scouting departments and what they're looking for. Then all the kids in college and high school are thinking, if I throw harder, maybe I'll get a look. Maybe I'll get an opportunity. Then it trickles all the way down to parents and coaches in lower levels of amateur ball. And all the way down to you see parents taking a 10-year-old to some guy that's going to promise them that they're going to increase their velocity. And on previous episodes, we understand, we've talked about what that creates as far as the throwing mechanic and all the different issues that we, we start to see. Um, so once again, the bounce back effect, you know, they say the NFL is, a, is a, a copycat league. I would say that in baseball, when you go from the amateur levels up to the major leagues, uh, a lot of times there's things created on the lower levels because adults are taking away the opportunity of people to learn the game the right way. 
and then the major leagues looks at what the talent current talent pool is and they see what they're lacking in and then they start developing protocols in which to evaluate scout and develop those type of players and then it bounces back because it trickles back down to oh now all we want to do is look at velocity and spin rates and we got a bounce back effect that creates something negative again um The next part I found a little bit disturbing, and that is that major doctors, major orthopedic surgeons across the United States felt it necessary to get out on the table in a variety of articles and different things. Um, This morning I posted three different um, articles one was a newspaper article that was relating to these problems and brought out some research. Others were research articles uh, about this whole Tommy John epidemic, and and it kind of goes into detail of a lot of things that we're discussing. But one of the things was that orthopedic surgeons felt as if they had to start making it public that Tommy John surgery does not make you throw harder. (laughs) But this is the misnomer when people start um, seeing kids throw harder when they come back from Tommy John. Do do you find it that they almost expect to have Tommy John now? Yes. Like it's almost like all, you know, the the, the joke before we moved down south uh, way back and no, don't want to ruin our southern, but... Southern uh, groups here, but I would hear jokes like, I'll worry about, I'm not worried about drinking, you know, Coca-Cola. I'll get I'll, my, my second pair of teeth will work out fine. Um, you know, they're worried about that. It's almost like Tommy John surgery. Ah, the sec- my second arm will be all right. And I, I'm amazed by it. I've, I've heard it too much this past summer. Yeah, I think, I think that goes, you know, you're, you're most likely hearing that from the performance oriented groups or performance oriented parents or, or coaches. Um, in one of the articles I posted, there's a <laughs> there was a situation where a young um, high school pitcher, well, even before high school, he was coming up, and um, things became velocity based and sweeper slurve based, and um, without all the details, he ends up elbows prop. Elbows bothering him. Different things are bothering him. Um, the the high school coach keeps saying, "No, you don't have to go to the doctor. Just go to our athletic trainers. They'll take care of it. It's probably just a little sore. Don't worry about it. Whole thing." Um, eventually, the pain gets so bad that he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, "You need Tommy John surgery." So there's a period of time that he probably was already hurt, and yet it was being kind of brushed under the carpet so that he could continue to the point where he couldn't continue. And now he needs the surgery. Um, so of course that whoever was do, writing the article and doing the reporting, they attempted to contact that, um, that coach and he, he didn't want to comment. The player goes on. Um, I believe that happened his senior high school. He goes on to, rehab and eventually uh, pitch at a major division one 
program in Texas, uh, has a pretty good career, gets drafted, goes to pro ball, but he sees the continuing environment of velocity, velocity, velocity. Um, so he relates it back to his youth and the different things he experienced. And um, the end of the story is that the new coach th- that uh, took over at his high school basically came out publicly. I, I guess he was getting some flack or the school was getting some flack about certain things that occurred. And he came out publicly and he said, this is all BS. If the pitchers train properly, I've had a pitcher throw 147 pitches in a game. And then he came back and long tossed the next day. He didn't have any problems. He was a great athlete. Well, let's see if he has any problems five or six years down the road, you know, but it, it's just this whole mentality. Um, again, a lot of times I feel that it's just spin because really the whole whole premise of what's going on is we're looking to control the environment and win as many games as possible. Um, so after this whole thing where the doctors came out and made those statements, there was a couple of things that I saw. One, there's many times that um, you might have a, a partial tear where the tear might be in a, in a place that can be worked with. And um, it becomes what's, what's called elective surgery. It's up to the pitcher. It's up to the parents. And there then ended up being a rise in elective surgeries because a couple of factors come into play. One, the diagnosis happens when you're uh, a sophomore in high school. Well, if I go ahead, if I go ahead and have the surgery, I can rehab. And then people who've had the surgery, they think that because a major leaguer was back on the mound in 14 months and they said it was really, you know, that was fast. Uh, or they're pitching the next year uh, after missing a year. They don't understand that that pitcher's there pitching, but. He, he most likely is not going to have his stuff back until the second year. Um, I do realize there's different forms of Tommy John now that if you don't have to have a full reconstruction, your time schedule is different. But on the full reconstructions, you know, you're still looking at about 18 months before you're on the back, before you're even thinking about being back on the mound trying to get somebody out but it's probably not until the following year or season that you're going to be hopefully back to what you used to be. Um, But the other thing where the elective surgery comes in is because the people think that one reason that you're just going to get better because you have Tommy John, if you take any untrained athlete, and you introduce them to a training protocol, it doesn't matter what the training protocol, they're going to, they're going to get stronger. They're going to get bigger. They're going to get faster. And now we're judging whether we've gotten better because we throw harder, right? It has nothing to do with all the other factors that we've discussed previously. My son was better because now he throws harder. And now he has more college coaches looking at him. Now he has more professional scouts looking at him. 
we are so glad that we had this Tommy John surgery. So this is one factor where there's the rise in the elective surgery when it and ends up being um, the parent or the player that, you know, they have to put their heads together and make a decision. The second one is what we just kind of touched on is the timing. I'm doing this so that my senior high school, I'm healthy and I'm back on the hill or my senior or my draft year in college or different reasons like that. Um, so we get stuck in this cycle of we think by having the surgery, we're going to get better. Uh, we don't really understand the full rehabilitation process and the time. We then attempt to manipulate the time. Uh, I still experience, you know, young guys who were unfortunate enough to have the surgery. And now they're, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I'm feeling good. When can I pitch in a game? Whoa, whoa, slow down. Well, so-and-so pitched in the game 12 months out. No, 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 you're, you're not that person. There's a lot of other factors, but it's the timing of they're planning out their future, and w which is fine, but they don't fully understand the process. And if they really fully understood the process, maybe they wouldn't have had the elective surgery. Um, and then the real horrifying part of this is that there are documented stories of parents bringing their child in and requesting from an orthopedic surgeon Tommy John surgery on a hurt on a healthy elbow. Now, if that's not the most insane thing you've ever seen, and Mr. the reason what, what would they do? I know we're both neither one of us are medical doctors, but they would remove the tendon ligament and just do it voluntarily. Well, no, you know. Doctors kick those people out of the office. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> in their in their little mind, right? But the doctors have documented instances because but because they're they're trying to reverse this whole thing that people think it's a positive thing. Um, <clears throat> now there's a tragic story, and this is what people have to start to realize. With any surgery, there's risks. So there's a young man. Um. And his parents were immigrants. He, he moved to the U.S., um, you know, at about Little League age. And um, he loved baseball. He played baseball in the country he came from. He was pretty good at it. And over in the States, he became a pretty good pitcher. And very good pitcher. Very highly skilled. But in high school... It turns out he had to have, uh, I believe it was a senior high school, had to have Tommy John, had signed his letter of intent to a Division One college, um, was going to do his rehab, the whole thing. So during, during the time of his rehab, he was pretty advanced in the timeline on his rehab. He started, ex the, the doctor used um, a tendon or part of a tendon in his thigh uh, for the graph. So it may have even been a partial, I don't know. And um, the young man started experiencing pain in his thigh. Um, the parents still were not completely fluid in English. So he had a tough time. He, 
they had a tough time um, trying to explain what the what the son was experiencing. Um, the coaches that were helping him at the time, you know, they were just trying to figure out maybe maybe he pulled his groin or, or or did something like that. That you know, the athletic trainers. Long story short, he had a he had an embolism and he and he died in his sleep. Um, so just think about that story as far as having surgery. It's like any major surgery, any major uh, operation. There's going to be risk. So why would be why would we be selling out for velocity and doing a lot of different things because we think it's beneficial for our son's son or daughter's development? And yet, open them up to risks, which, of course, this is the the largest, you know, fatal death, and um, and that's a rare case. But why would we be doing any of this? Um, so, I then kind of uh, encapsulated some of the stuff we've spoken about over the past three episodes, and. Uh, it's not necessarily cause and effect, but what what are the reasons why this some of these things you know besides the timeline we went over besides the the obvious situations we've talked about with the pitch calm and the the sweeper and recreating arm slots based on performance, but there's some things in the last three weeks that we've discussed one that happens in baseball a lot early specialization because if we see if we see our nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old little league age ball player, if we see an increase in his baseball skill, he's probably going to dominate on the diamond compared to the rest of the kids. So we forsake his overall athletic development, his ability to play multi-sports, his ability to train in different environments, his ability to compete in different environments, so that he can work on his baseball skill year-round. And if we're lucky enough to end up with a good coach or a good instructor, if that's the route that the, the parent and the child decides to go, maybe we have, you know, we have some benefits and they'll advise them that you're not going to do this year-round. But if you get an instructor who's also one of the coaches of your travel team and they want your you want your uh their skill level to improve they want you to be a better ball player so it can help their team they want you to specialize right they tell you all the reasons that we've talked in the past well we need you to play on the fall team if you want to play in the spring then you got to come to workouts in the winter and the workouts in the winter in some organizations might not be um, there to uh, supply the proper rest. And those are the, the reasons for early specialization. We've discussed under the heading of early specializations. Okay. We've decided just to play baseball, but we are now at 10 years old and we never play another position besides the position that we played. Then because of specialization, we've discussed increased workloads, year-round throwing, no rest. Every orthopedic, every doctor, every strength coach, every baseball coach, 
that understands what it is and what's best for your child uh, and your player knows that you cannot play baseball. You cannot throw a baseball year round. A minimum, they'll say two to three months. And then, of course, then they'll say, well, I mean, at least three months. Come on. Uh, we discussed about in the early in the uh, early 80s about the rise of strength and conditioning programs. Well, uh, it's not really that beneficial if all of a sudden your 12-year-old is lifting weights like the 42-year-old Roger Clements. Conditioning programs are beneficial. They're, they're vitally important to learn how to move properly, to learn how to stabilize your joints, to learn your postural strength, your balance, your stability. Okay, it's not about being bigger and stronger, but yet in a majority of these programs, we're looking at bigger, stronger, faster. Why? At 12 years old, the biggest guy usually does win. Okay. Then when you look at why all of a sudden, the, obviously the increase in the major leagues, it's insane. The increase in college and now even high school. Adolescents and young ball players, the damage that's produced because of the reasons we've already discussed workload, mechanics, sellout for velocity, improper rest, no pitch counts, and going back to two weeks ago, not prepared properly or ready to pitch. When we start pitching when we're nine years old and we're not ready for it, there's going to be a cumulative damage that grows from year to year, especially if different situations aren't corrected. And uh, I, I don't think we have to go into details on those. We've discussed them, you know, thoroughly. But another interesting part that I thought of, uh, with all these travel teams popping up and all the different things, Let's think back to conversations that have gone on in Major League Baseball when they talk about expansion. And then you get all the old arguments. The old players are saying, ah, the product's watered down. There's not enough good pitchers. There's this, there's that, there's this. There's big league staffs now that have a majority of, you know, guys in a bullpen that belong in AAA, and they're just interchangeable. Then you bring in the analytic portion, wins above replacement. So organizations start uh, modeling their major league pitching staff so that, um, let's say, the last three or four guys in the bullpen for a mid-market or small-market club, we they're interchangeable with three or four guys that are in AAA. Okay. More teams means we need more pitchers. When we need more pitchers, uh, let's say in your community, or, for example, right here in, in the Charlotte metro area, travel baseball teams, the amount of them are insane. Now, I do believe that with their product, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's what I laugh about. Like, we, honestly, we had practice last night with our group. Um, we go Monday, we do, because uh, it's after a tournament, we'll do light, you know, light cage work, um, maintenance day, basically, with skills. And then when uh, Tuesdays we'll do uh, pitchers and catchers, uh, same thing, maintenance days, just kind of fine tuning skills, short bullpens. 
with tracking. And then Wednesday, Thursday, we do simulated games. And we were over at a field yesterday, and uh, there were nine other teams from our immediate surrounding area. And I kind of talked the same thing to the coaches because I'm, I'm kind of on the outside. as we, I'm, I'm the alien in this in the group. And um, I asked them, I said, why don't you guys just all get along? And it's what's funny, at one point in time, those teams were together when they were younger. And then somebody gets pissed off at somebody. It's, it's always the adults. And then now it's a watered-down product. And the biggest question I get asked is, how come no talent comes out of Myrtle Beach, which is where I'm from, or the surrounding area? And I tell people, which is why we started our team, there's a lot of talent here. The problem is, is that um, the people who are placing themselves in the position of instructor or coach are not qualified to develop the talent. And they're more concerned, as we talked about today, about winning a tournament than developing players. And then uh, these teams are so splintered that rather than have, you know, nine or 10 really skilled next level kids, and then the next nine, the next nine, the next nine, um, they, they'd much rather have their own ego lead the way. And that, that's a problem. But I didn't mean to digress, but I saw, I see it firsthand each time we go over there and uh, it saddens me. And uh, the, the kids that I have, I found all kids that have never been tainted by travel ball, 15, 16 year old kids. And uh, they're, they're behind in some areas um, that game experience gives you. But in terms of other areas, we can, we, we've been able to make that up because they're a blank slate. Um, it doesn't hurt that I have my two boys on it, but um but certainly it's a, it's a watered down product beyond belief. Uh, but I, sorry, I didn't mean to digress on you, no. but that hit a, hit a nerve. No, but that's exactly true because think of it this way. Okay. Without, without previously preparing for any form of expansion in anything, um, you're going to have a watered down product for, for one simple reason. More teams need more pitchers. More teams means need more qualified coaches. So that adds to it right there. Have we, when all of a sudden in a particular area, when we decide to, okay, we had uh, four travel teams and now we have 24 travel teams. In preparation for that to happen, was there a coordinated effort to run coaches clinics and different things to pre-qualify the coaches that will be working with these teams? No, of course not. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking facetiously here. But travel teams, when they first started, um, for example, the start of the Perfect Game uh, Association or whatever company, whatever you want to call it, the, the individual who started it came from Iowa. And he was looking to improve the opportunities for young players in Iowa or in different parts of the country that would not get as much exposure and an opportunity to be seen by college coaches or professional scouts and the whole thing. So the initial part of founding this organization, there was nothing but positive benefits that were the person was attempting to achieve. When they started travel baseball teams, um, you know, a precursor to travel baseball teams and, and it was way better organized and, and way better outfitted was the American Legion system, you know, especially in the Northeast, um, where let's say they took the best, the best players 
from that county or that section, that little region, and made an all-star team. And they played on American Legion, and the American Legion then traveled farther than you would the local community would and played. Okay, but then they played other um, Legion teams, and of course, sometimes there was a disparity in talent, but for the most part, it was highly competitive. So the travel team started with that as the goal, that we're bringing together the top players. The first travel teams were more uh, high school age than anybody else. Uh, There were situations where certain high schools didn't have baseball or their baseball teams were, were not properly funded or different uh, difficulties that they ran into, you know, in the real world of, of having a high school team and expenses and budgets and everything like that. So this is a good thing, but when all of a sudden it turns out that the one travel team or the two travel teams, if you look at the Charlotte Metro area, we all know it's a growing, it's a pretty large city nowadays. So on the north side of town, if there was one travel team, on the south side of town, there was another travel team, you know, maybe one from uh, from the RBI program, you know, in the inner city or something like that. Yeah, so you have three or four, and you're, you're serving the population pretty good. And now the situation arises that you just spoke of, and now we have 16. And now we have 24. You know, now we have 36. Where are all these coaches coming from, right? Where are the pitchers coming from? Nobody thinks of these things. So then you go to a 10-year-old travel tournament. And let's say that travel team has uh, 11 kids, 12 kids, right? Maybe 11, right? And you find out that at least nine of them, if not all 11, pitch. Well, they're not pitchers. Some of them maybe have never pitched before. But the coach is having them pitch because I need a certain amount of pitchers to get through a weekend tournament. Uh, I witnessed a, a game this past Sunday where it was obvious that the one team in the tournament had run out of pitchers, people that were actual pitchers that trained to be pitchers that were ready physically, emotionally, and psychologically to be pitchers, whether it was, you know, mismanagement of the schedule or maybe one of the guys uh, got knocked around or on a Saturday or, Maybe someone got sick. I mean, there's all reasons why it happens. And now there are three guys who've rarely towed the rubber are pitching in a game against a nationally ranked travel team who is absolutely crushing them. So all the things we've discussed in the past, try harder, try the, all the negative things that we've done, it's all going on in the field right before your eyes. Um, and nobody takes that into account. What they take into account is, oh, wow, we lost today 22 to 7. It's all about the wins and the losses, right? And so that's the other part is 
by expanding. Whether 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 a travel organization expands and it has multiple teams at a, at an age level, or what or what in a in a local community there's an overabundance of travel teams. A couple of things happen. One, the little league structure or the uh, town rec league structure falls apart. They don't have enough players. They don't yeah. have enough qualified coaches. They don't have all right. They'd all rather go to travel ball. Uh, where's the pitchers? Now everybody's a pitcher, even if they haven't checked the boxes in the parameters that they should be pitching at that age. Um, let's go back to this uh, team that used the pitch comp. They used the pitch comp for every pitcher. Did was every pitcher at the ability level or the uh, factor level that we've discussed to be throwing curveballs? I don't know. I don't know because I don't. I don't know the kids. I don't work with them, right? But if every kid had the pitch calm on his forearm, and the manager's calling pitches based upon what he thinks is going to get those hitters out, you know, he he. He's probably following a pattern and a structure what what he thinks is the right thing to do. So some of those pitchers might be attempting to throw pitches that they're not ready to throw. And, and I mean, for me, that's an assumption or a hypothetical. But the point is, is that it it, it could be happening. That's why it's it's just it's just unbelievable that we're we're looking at that. Um, you know, and and the other part is this: if you're on a travel team. And you're 14 years old and you need Tommy John surgery. Does the travel team pay for your Tommy John surgery? No, of course it doesn't. Does the travel team have insurance to pay for your Tommy John surgery? No, of course it doesn't. After you have the Tommy John surgery, does the travel team? So you go to your orthopedic surgeon, you do your physical therapy, you're now released to start your throwing program. Does your travel team have anybody qualified to oversee a return to game action throwing program, an exercise routine? Usually not. So you have to do that all on your own, right? Now, when you're ready to go, does the travel team take you back? I don't know. So this whole environment that's being created of all the things that we discussed today, all the risk falls on that player. Yet that young player, he wants to, he wants to be respectful. He wants to listen to his authority figures. He wants to listen to his parents. We have instances uh, and situations of coaches or even parents saying, ah, oh, you know, your forum's a little tight. Don't worry about it. They don't know. They're not qualified to assess any of that. Oh, go to the athletic trainer. Oh, just put some extra ice on it today. All these reasons why things have gotten out of control. And these are things that are very difficult to, uh, it's like a minefield for, for parents and players. And it's, uh, I feel for them. And, and I wish it wasn't this way. But this is the system that's been created, and it's what we have to try to 
navigate through. Well, if they stop paying for it, then it'll stop existing. That's uh, the teams I looked at last night. They were over there with uh, they had uh, fancy little practice jerseys on the hats. The coaches had the flat flat bill uh, flat brim hats with the sunglasses on top and uh, all the gear, but uh, none of the none of the substance. And not that people can't teach the game, but one of the individuals I asked, I said, "What, what do you do?" He said, "Well, this is my. I have a showcase team, and I have a, this to like seven different classifications. I was like, what's the difference?" And uh, couldn't really answer the question. Was giving me the, 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 the kind of the runaround travel ball lingo stuff. And I said, I, I understand all this stuff. I said, what's the difference in terms of the kid, and uh, and what do they get? And you know, they, they again, they can't answer those questions. But I I always take it back to the parents and just ask them in simple questions. Do you understand how my son learns? Do you understand how my son socializes? Do you understand what we want out of this experience? And is this about development, or is this about you know, an ego, a ranking, a fake ranking, nonetheless. And how many players from your program have gone on to play collegially or earn some money toward their education with all this money I'm putting into college, into this, you know, this elite travel program. And what's funny about it, Jim, is the only reason we started our program is I just got same thing why we started our scholarship stuff. I got tired of seeing parents ripped off. Um, just like, just like you're talking today. So we said, you know, rather than complain about it, I'm going to provide a solution. So to date, we're up close to 700 kids in four years that we've helped get scholarship money for college. And um, that's what I asked the travel program. So I said, we don't even run a travel. We just started one. We, I guess we call it travel because we do travel a little bit. But um, I said, there's not another program in this area that's, I mean, some of these programs existed for 20 years that can even come close to that number. What are you doing this for? I mean, are you trying to make kids better? Do you want them to enjoy the game? I mean, you're trying to help them get money. There's no purpose. And the problem is the parents won't ask that question. They're almost afraid of, uh, because if they ask it, they'll be shunned and they'll be pushed away and somebody else will get that empty experience for that kid. So I guess to each their own, but uh, gosh, if, if parents could just slow down and focus on the development of their child, focus on enjoying the game of baseball, like, like you say, hey, p- pitch longer and pitch better. I mean, God, or, you know, whatever you want to, whatever skill you want to put in the game, pitching longer and pitching better is what it's about. It's not about being the greatest 10 year old travel team in the history of the game. That's a, uh, that's about as silly as you could possibly get. So I think the content today, and that's what I love about your podcast here that we do together is that, um, it's about providing solutions for the parents. It's not, we're, we're not cramming things in your, your head, do your own homework, but these are the ideas and thoughts that you've got to start formulating in order to make it a better situation for your children out there. So parents right. got to be the first educator. That's my message of the day, I guess. Correct. You know, Dave, in closing, um, I often use the term self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you look back, um, Perfect Game is a very successful organization. And as I said, at the start, um, it was created for all the positive reasons to help kids that um, – couldn't get the proper exposure based upon the location of where they grew up and yeah. things like that. I do believe that the original owner sold the organization. I don't know who owns it now, to be honest with you, most likely, you know, some group or corporation or something, because I mean, it has grown in scale that I'm sure it sold for a pretty good, pretty good penny. But if, if you're the perfect game and you're inviting to different tournaments, the top travel teams, the top ranked travel teams in the country, there's a lot of talent there. So I'm always amused when 
when an organization like that, then as part of their marketing uh, program and stuff, uh, says the all the alumni of the perfect game who were playing in the major leagues. Right. <laughs> like they had something to do with it. Yeah. I mean, okay. Um, the other part is that the fact that Major League Baseball has uh, bought into going to showcases and seeing all the top talent um, is again, the bounce back effect. Okay. Someone on the amateur side organizes this in the private sector. Years ago, scouts were told, you don't go to a showcase. You don't go to this. That's dirty. Exactly. Now, you know, because of the way the games run. So the bounce back is the start at the amateur level, shot up to the, to the big leagues, the big leagues buys in and now it comes down and now perfect game can say, Hey, Prince Fielder's been here. This guy's been here and all the alumni. And then it trickles down to the travel organization. A majority of these national ranked programs are recruiting players. Oh, they all are. Yeah, they all are. Right. So if you, if you want to be commended and, and, and receive congratulations and awards for your ability to recruit, well, then congratulations. But it has nothing to do with your ability to, to, to develop. Yeah, it's a, I call it collect and neglect. That's exactly. the mentality. And it's, this is the bill of goods that parents are being sold. Yeah. You know? well, I have kids on my team, and, and I wouldn't say my team. My t- good, solid ball players. They work hard. They do things the right way, fundamental. Um, I'm going to help all of them use baseball to get to college in some capacity. Not a single pro prospect on my list. Sorry, MLB. Um, you know, I, and I've got some young kids that are really good that are with us, uh, like my son Tanner. But it's like popcorn in a pan. You don't know if it's going to it's going to pop. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. So, I'm going to let them have fun in the meantime. But I've had I had six kids as of this morning on my 14 man roster. Um, parents reach out and say that their sons were being recruited by other teams. And my parents know better. They've been armed. And here's the questions we asked. And, and they stuttered and fumbled and hung up. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's nonstop pirating from each other. And it's like, I, I liken it to the, the movie Titanic. I don't want to ruin the ending for people, but the ship goes down in the end. But it's like rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. It doesn't solve the problem. It just keeps shuffling kids around um, in bad situations. So I always tell my kids, I'm not, rec- I don't recruit the kids. They recruit each other. They bring them to me. Families recruit each other. Same with our scholarship stuff. And if you don't know the difference, then I'm not going to explain it to you. That's, that's not, I don't, I'm not a big fan of people that don't get that. They don't get it. That's right. a waste of my time. Right. And I, I do need to say that there are quality programs out there. Absolutely. Just like in, in major league baseball, there's some quality organizations that develop and still do things. Uh, which I would consider the proper way, in my opinion. Um, there's still there's quality college coaches out there. There's quality high school coaches out there. You know, um, just like the thought process of, of expansion. There's quality pitchers out there that are going to stay healthy and pitch for a long time. There's quality educators out there. There's quality trainers, coaches, organizations. But there's enough sharks, if you'll say, or unqualified people out there that a large percentage of youth ball players come into contact with those individuals. And that's what we're trying to help out with. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, we can, we can really affect the people that get it 
and just need that confidence or the right questions to ask, we can affect the people that even don't get it because those are conversations. Uh, but the ones that don't get that they don't get it, pff, waste of time. But I think your podcast gives tons of content for everybody. I think it's, I mean, there, there's no, there's no fat on this. It's, uh, I hope people are writing it down. If not, listen to it again and take notes the second time. Cause this is a lot of good stuff that's going to help you help your kid. And that's what it's about. So, um, Jim, phenomenal, phenomenal show. Any tease on next week or you got to let things kind of simmer a little bit? Well, probably simmer a little bit. I mean, I, I could put thoughts in my head, like, you know, maybe we're going to, like I said, beginning of this one, you know, have some fun and do some things. And then next thing you know, something pops up or I research something or I come across something or questions come my way and it triggers uh, a different direction. But uh, whatever it is, I just hope that uh, it's a, it's an understandable message and it uh, gives some uh, help and support to the people that are listening. Oh, absolutely. I think that's uh, we get that, hundred percent from our audience about, about, uh, this show in particular, all of our shows, but this show toe the rubber, very distinctly different from other shows. And, and it's much appreciated by, I think we have a very sophisticated audience. They want this stuff. They crave it. They eat it up. And we're talking to those people, the ones that get it. And some of the ones that don't get it, but want to, and I'm trying to pull in the ones that don't get that they don't get it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we can influence them if they just sit and listen and, and try to understand. So, but thanks again for your show, uh, today. Look forward to next week's episode, this episode 276 on our network with Toe the Rubber. Um, chock full of information right here. And any, I saw I saw the haircut day on, on the internet, not to go get personal, but I saw the boys' haircuts there. Seamus went with the mohawk, huh? Uh, no, he, he um, I forget what the heck they call it. Uh, he described it to the barber and she said, oh, you mean the mop? <laughs> oh, the mop, okay. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. 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 So. Fortunately, he's a good looking kid. He can get away with that stuff. Uh, I don't think I could do that. Yes. Uh, I mean, I know he's my son, but he's a pretty good looking kid. He could uh, he, he could wear his hair anyway and still look pretty good. Yeah. Well, good deal. <laughs> well, have a, have a great weekend. Uh, we'll post this show immediately and full of tons of information. And we appreciate all the effort you give. Audience, thank you. Close to 50,000 now, 74 countries grassroots MLB front offices. Give Jim a five stars today on his uh, podcast. Write some nice comments on it. If you, th if you need anything uh, as far as content from our end, feel free to reach out to him. Um, you can reach out to him on website, social media. We post it every week and he'll be certain to get back to you as will I. And we will uh, cover that content next week because the show is for you guys out there. Jim, thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Don't try that in a small town